This is Bio Busters, Professors Hanging Out Talking Science, episode number four, recorded on September 6, 2018. I'm Delbert Abi Abdallah, and you're listening to the podcast that takes you beyond the classroom and into the trenches of science. I'm here with Dr. Fawner, Chris Fawner. How are you today, man? I'm doing pretty good. First two weeks of class went pretty smoothly. How about you? Uh, smooth, yeah, yeah. So far, so good. Uh, got um, a full schedule. Uh, well, it's only the second week too. Let's touch base on maybe week ten or eleven. Yeah, and yeah. See ask, how we're doing. ask me in a few months, and yeah. then I'll probably be ready to pull my hair out. Well, that's okay. You have nice hair. You have a lot. Of <laughs> there's a there's a lot there to work with, right? All right, cool, cool. And uh, uh, anything else uh, you want to talk about before we uh, get going over here? No, that's about it. I mean, I think we want to definitely reach out to our audience very briefly and say thank you for all of the not only likely shares of our podcast to your friends, relatives, etc., but thanks for the feedback. We've gotten a lot of useful feedback in the past few weeks on not only the podcasts we've put up so far, but also on possible ideas for future episodes. So starting the groundwork here we're building up and we're talking about things that you want to talk about which is always nice yeah absolutely email us uh, with any uh, questions or topics you'd like us to discuss and uh, we'll go from there Uh, coming up in a few weeks uh, we're gonna start having uh, guests on the show again Uh, last episode we had uh, Neil Lax uh, a, a recent professor at Thiel, a recent hire in the neuroscience department, and um, uh, over the next few episodes, uh, we plan on having some uh, students come on the show, right? And you know, these are students that are uh, either doing research projects uh, in their own uh, courses or uh, in some of our courses, right? And who knows, even if this continues to take off and we start to kind of expand our horizons a little bit more we can even involve you know an alumnus or two coming in we do have homecoming uh, weekend coming up soon oh yeah sure yeah if there's something interesting they want to talk about absolutely not a bad idea cool cool all right so uh, uh, what do we want to talk about today so we're going to be talking about kind of weird science phenomena that are taking place you know in the natural environment on the planet earth and we're going to tackle one of the bigger conspiracy theories that, again, like any good conspiracy theory, seems to be getting a lot of attention in the past Traction. few years. Traction. That's a very good word. Traction with the advent of social media and everybody talking about this and, unfortunately, people actually believing this. Um, one of the – now, this is not only from audience listeners who have emailed in and asked us, okay, talk about this, talk about that, but – These are just things that I've always been curious about, you know, as a person and as a scientist. What are the actual explanations for some of the weird stuff that we hear about and that maybe we've personally witnessed, you know, in our lives? Yeah. So uh, there are a uh, few topics that uh, you had said uh, you wanted to talk about or uh, that, you know, we've hear about all the time in terms of uh, conspiracy theories. So you wanted to talk about uh, what Bermuda Triangle, sort of a history explanation there, and whether there's a scientific explanation of that, what that conspiracy theory is, right? I think that's one kind of conspiracy theory slash weird science phenomenon that almost everybody's wondered about at least one point in their lives, right? Yep. So for those of you who aren't exactly aware, the Bermuda Triangle, 
Triangle is this very, very wide expanse of ocean. It measures approximately 700 square kilometers, and it's going to be located between Bermuda, Puerto Rico, and the very tip of Florida. And as many of you likely know, over many, many years, the past hundred years, it has supposedly been a site of numerous disappearances between ships, planes, and even people. In fact, one stat that I well, read... I mean, hopefully people are on those ships and planes. Right? I would say if they're driving themselves... <laughs> so it's mostly people, right? Yeah, if the ships or planes are piloting themselves, then we have a huge problem. Maybe that's why they're disappearing. A big hole in our theory here. But uh, I think the recent stat that I read was actually in the past 100 years, over at least 1,000, maybe a little bit over 1,000 people have lost their lives in the Bermuda Triangle. And because documented of at the very least documented right? yeah, yeah. there likely may be more but the one thing that has kind of eluded uh, scientific explanation is what's happening in this huge area of ocean that's causing all of these disappearances in the past hundred years and like with anything that's unexplainable a bunch of conspiracy theories have popped up in the past so many decades uh, alien activity, the fact that these thousands of people were most likely, according to conspiracy theorists, kidnapped by aliens and are being experimented on. Um, the lost continent of Atlantis. I would imagine you've heard about Atlantis, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The mythical ancient sunken city where I would imagine mermaids, maybe Aquaman. Is so what? So that's like what in the uh, under the sea in the Bermuda Triangle, just like what sucking people down. I or? guess maybe it's some kind of portal for. You know, regular human beings to visit the fish people living down on the well, seabed. Possibly, yeah, possibly. Possibly. Yeah, we don't know, so minute chance. And even the chances of a large geomagnetic storm that is knocking out the electrical capabilities of these ships and planes and causing them to crash. Hey, I see a uh, science paper in the making. Well, you know, <laughs> we have free time, right? We're both teaching but, yeah, full yeah. loads. I, we could take a trip out science to Bermuda Triangle. Science paper day 562, Dear Diary. <laughs> Dear Diary, I like that. Kind of like a star. Trek expedition. But um, the one thing we wanted to talk about in today's podcast is what are the plausible explanations put forth from the trenches of science, right? What are the scientific data currently that support different explanations? And actually, this is somewhat recent. In the past so few it, it turns out that people are actually working on this, right? Like there's someone studying what's going on in the Bermuda Triangle. Exactly. This is not just something that, you know, conspiracy theorists are currently trying to come up with wild, you know, scenarios for. This is actually being efficiently investigated by the scientific community. And what has come about, the general conclusion so far, is from a group of scientists in the United Kingdom. And it's actually in this really cool BBC documentary that I actually want to check out now. This documentary is called The Bermuda Triangle Enigma. And the current working theory for these disappearances in the Bermuda Triangle for the past 100 years is likely due to giant surprise rogue waves. And a lot of people have probably seen movies, the Poseidon Adventure, Rogue Waves. Yeah, Yeah, pretty cool, right? It just sounds menacing, just saying that word, (laughs) Rogue Waves. But these Rogue Waves are these giant, steep walls of water. They don't answer to authority, apparently. Exactly. Uh, They're very, very surprising. They don't last for very long. But the key thing is they can hit unexpectedly, okay? And the cool thing about this, not cool if you're being hit by a Rogue Wave, (laughs) but the cool thing about this that lends more credence to this theory is that these rogue waves are also very, very common in other parts of the world, in other oceanic parts of the world, such as the very tip of South Africa is a site, a hotbed of activity for the formation of these rogue waves. 
um, what the current theory is, is that, and this is studies, studies that have been conducted by the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or I like to say NOAA, N-O-A-A. And I think that's what most people like to say. Yeah, NOAA. That's pretty cool. But what um, the scientists have done is they actually developed this study in order to basically analyze. They actually built this kind of wave chamber and built tiny simulations of these different ships. And they analyzed and researched, okay, in this wave tank, what is actually happening? These engineers constructed a simulation of a ship, and they discovered that depending on the frequency of the rogue waves, bigger ships have a lot more trouble staying afloat if they are hit very, very suddenly from different ends of the ship from these rogue waves. And the chances of capsizing and sinking of these ships is at a very, very high frequency depending on these rogue waves. So effectively, you're talking about waves not coming from essentially one direction. They're hitting a ship from multiple directions, front, back, sideways, etc. From multiple directions, and it actually does depend on the specific part of the ship that is going to be hit. Uh, it, this study did say that bigger ships, these bigger vessels, have a much higher likelihood of being overturned and eventually uh, sinking due to these rogue waves. Okay. And I believe it was a ship from 1918 that vanished. It was called the USS Cyclops, which for those of you who are well-versed in Greek mythology, I just like that word and that Greek figure, Cyclops, right? The Cyclops that fought Hercules. I'm going on a tangent, but... This ship, the USS Cyclops from 1918, they built a replica of this ship in this wave tank and found that, yes, due to the incidence of rogue How waves, big is this wave tank? I kind of want to research that and even go visit it myself. I mean, it would have to be fairly large in order to build a tiny replica of the ship and then to generate these random, sudden, you know, waves that then overcome and sink the ship. So, yeah. Well, well, something to look into, I suppose. Makes me want to become some type of meteorologist or, you know, oceanic investigator and just build wave tanks for most of my life. Sounds pretty fun, right? Yeah, that'll be science paper day 5,602. <laughs> there you go. But another likely cause, and I would imagine this is a pretty logical explanation that we sometimes overlook, probably due to some human error factored in here, okay? Just the overall fact that... You're either piloting a boat out into this large expanse as well as piloting a plane into this large unknown expanse of the ocean. Human error could be just as likely of a cause of all of these disappearances. In fact, back in 1945, disappearance of this plane, flight number 19, likely occurred because the crew most likely got lost ran out of fuel, and then unfortunately crashed down into the ocean. So human error, the generation of these rogue waves, and these rogue waves, like I said, are common in other parts of the world. So it's likely that they are common also in this almost uh, 700,000 square kilometer region of the Bermuda Triangle. 
Now, is there a time of the year where this is more likely to happen? That's actually a very good question that I don't know the answer to. Could depend on the specific time of year, I'm sure, depending on ocean currents, you know, the what the different jet streams, even the Gulf Stream, could impact how volatile the ocean is and the generation of a higher likelihood of rogue waves. And what did you say you found some statistics by the uh, Coast Guard as recent as 2016 uh, talking about most incidents in that area uh, happening due to uh, people either having no formal training or any experience at sea, right? Yeah, 82% of the incidents and emergencies that have occurred in that area during the year of 2016 involved people, these pilots, who had no formal training or experience of being at sea. So this just contributes to that idea of human error, the fact that these individuals are going out into this large body of water, not really understanding that, hey, I need to be well-versed in sea right. travel in order to come back alive. So we're talking a lot of sort of like uh, private boats, uh, not necessarily commercial uh, boats being lost mostly in that area. It's just like someone with their yacht or whatever, you know. Just Privately owned and registered yeah. boats that could be lost in that specific area, yes. A lot of human error is contributed to maybe these people think okay I take off if I get in trouble I have my cell phone on me I'll be able to call for help or text for help maybe in this current day uh, what they don't realize is once you get a few miles offshore and you start getting in the middle of nowhere what's going to happen in your cell phone you're going to lose a signal yeah. and that way you are most likely stranded and uh, what's the uh, other thing about the weather in that area that makes it uh, more likely for things to be uh, prone to accidents? The fact that you're going to have a very strong and fast ocean current known as the Gulf Stream that can cause very, very rapid and very violent changes in weather patterns in that specific area of the ocean. So in that case, it can be very, very fatal for how ships are able to handle these different weather patterns, these rogue waves, much higher likelihood of a disappearance due to those factors. And most of the waters around the Caribbean islands are shallow waters anyway, right? Exactly, so, exactly. Cool. So uh, not necessarily a, uh, uh, what's it, the, the uh, Atlantis or uh, mermaids uh, sucking these things in, right? No, no, no geo, large geomagnetic storm that's hibernating and remaining hidden in that large area of the ocean. Two most, the two most accurate theories as of now, likely simply due to either human error and also the volatile weather and rogue waves that likely right. hit that area. So there's a scientific explanation. There you have, folks. Usually there is a scientific explanation for almost anything that you witness on the planet Earth. Even if it's an incomplete scientific explanation, but yeah, that is true. There's a scientific explanation. Well, incomplete just means lack of data, right? I mean, there could be data, but more data needs to be gathered and measured in order to come to a more firm conclusion. Sure. doesn't mean it's not viable, though. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. One other thing that I was researching and that a few of my friends who've listened to the podcast have suggested we talk about is this kind of not only frustrating, but it can be somewhat frightening experience of sleep paralysis. So just to ask you, because I know... Not necessarily a weird science, uh, well, not necessarily a conspiracy theory. No, no, this is more this weird falls phenomenon. into the weird science phenomenon, yeah. not a conspiracy theory. No, no, yeah, this is sleep clear. paralysis is documented. It is scientifically observed. Sleep paralysis is 
not necessarily a condition, but an event that can occur in... To almost you know, anyone. Right? Almost anyone. I mean, well, I've experienced okay. sleep paralysis. Well, well, t- tell us what it is then. So sleep paralysis is this state that occurs during the dreaming phase of sleep, where the muscles are actually, due to the functioning of the body, your muscles are going to become frozen and paralyzed. We're talking voluntary muscle action, right? Voluntary muscle, meaning your skeletal muscles, right? Right. And if you think about the kind of adaptive value of that, right? Why would you want, whenever you're entering into your dream state and you're asleep, why would you want your muscles to become paralyzed and inactive during that dreaming phase? Well, I mean, if you're if you're dreaming about running, right? I mean, that that, <laughs> that could be a problem, right? I mean, if you start running or you're gonna start moving in bed, yeah. Exactly, that could be, yeah. and this is something that I always express to my human anatomy and human physiology students is kind of the wonders of the mechanics and function of the human body, right? Everything happens in the body for a reason, and most of those reasons are due to protective reasons. You don't want to be imagining running, or if you're sleeping in bed next to somebody, thrashing about in your sleep, hurting yourself as well as the other person. So what did your body do? Your body came up with this protective method of keeping your body frozen while you're entering into this dream state. So a pretty cool adaptive feature that I really like. So this happens in uh, what phase of sleep, REM phase? It's going to be the REM phase. I believe REM stands for resting eye movement, correct? So during the REM phase, which occurs about 90 to 120 minutes into deep sleep. And that's a sort of in most in most people, right? Can it occur sooner or like what? There are incidences okay. where it can occur a little bit sooner or even a little bit later. Not everybody's okay. REM patterns okay. are going to be the same, but on average, about 90 to 120 minutes into deep sleep. And in this state, the brain is going to be very active. Dreams are going to start to manifest and are going to be at their most intense. And specifically, you're going to have these voluntary muscles that are going to become paralyzed. This can even still occur as the mind, via these dreams, are acting out weird, crazy, different dreams, types of scenarios, okay? Okay. And up until a few years ago, the exact causes and specific kind of neurological underpinnings of sleep paralysis were largely unknown. Up until I believe about 2012, I want to say, in the Journal of Neuroscience is whenever a likely cause for this was actually discovered. And what researchers have discovered is that the presence of two very specific chemicals that are going to be found in the brain and in your body. We call these chemicals neurotransmitters because they allow the nervous system and neurons to connect and communicate from one to the next to the next. What's going to happen here is that these two very specific neurotransmitters are going to attach or bind to muscles and actually cause the muscles to become inactive during that time period, okay? In that case, you're going to have a neurotransmitter known as GABA and another neurotransmitter known as glycine. And what's really cool is that this important identification of these neurotransmitters are going to be useful for maybe helping to treat people who undergo sleep paralysis in a at a very high degree throughout their lifetime and might actually be useful in treating other sleep disorders throughout a person's lifetime. Now, I mean, why would you want to treat sleep paralysis? I mean, it's not like, I mean, you're sleeping, right? You, so is, is this an actual medical problem or is it just a, a, a just something that is sort of defined or a normal act of something that happens normally while you're sleeping well i think the thing that it's not necessarily 
a huge concern and a huge problem, although there are documentaries, one or two documentaries that show people who suffer from chronic sleep paralysis. And what can happen is that sleep paralysis can occur either when you're right falling asleep or right when you're just waking up. And at times, the person can actually become fully aware and fully conscious but while, not able to move. Exactly, while they're still having their voluntary muscles paralyzed. And there can be almost this weird gray area where the person is starting to come out of a deep sleep, but they are still hallucinating or still in yeah, kind of like yeah. that foggy dream state, right? And their muscles are still paralyzed. Yeah. And, go ahead. Yeah, you know, that happened to me recently. I was. I'd actually uh, uh, fallen asleep on my couch like I do almost every night, right? I'm trying to remember what I was watching. I think I was watching uh, Better Call Saul. Is that, is that what the name of that show? It's yeah, the yeah, spinoff yeah. of Breaking Bad. Yeah, 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 I still yeah, need yeah. to watch I, it, but I... I'm like, I think on season two or something like that. But I was watching that, and I, I fell asleep, right? And um, I And then I had this dream that woke me up. And I was kind of in the middle of it while still trying to wake up. Mm -hmm. And I had sort of out of the corner of my eye imagined that there was something or someone in the house. There wasn't. Obviously, I was dreaming, right? And uh, But I was trying to move my legs and arms to essentially just like, oh, you know, get up and confront exactly. that person, right? But yeah. I could not move a single inch of my body. Well, it's happened to me once or twice, and this was years ago when I was living by myself in graduate school next to Duquesne University. Cheap plug there. But um, during this time, I remember just coming out of a deep sleep and imagining it must have been still morning, a little bit dark out, and I literally thought I saw some kind of almost shadow figure standing in the corner of my room and just like you thinking okay well I'll just get up turn a light on and I'll see nothing's there or even just to have a command a voice a vocal command to say you know hey what the hell are you doing in my room and what I found was even the muscles that control my speech the muscles that control sound coming out of my mouth and throat and the ability to move I was still completely paralyzed hmm. Now that's happened to you, I would say, a few times, correct? Uh, well, I, I remember the one, the one incident uh, just from a few weeks ago. Actually, it's it's not uh, it's not that old. Uh, it may have happened before once or twice, yeah, but not it's not common. So for me, it happened to me maybe two or three times, but there are individuals that experience this almost on the regular experience. Like a daily basis type thing? Maybe daily, nightly, at least a few times a week. Mm. Now, if you think about it, you experience it once or twice every few months, you're not going to really become too concerned or too anxious about it. But if you're undergoing this somewhat traumatic experience, let's say three to five times a week, then you start developing some anxiety, you start becoming afraid to go to sleep, depending on the severity of these hallucinations. Some people experience a floating sensation, even auditory hallucinations due to the kind of overactive dream state. So that's when it can actually become a little bit frightening and concerning. Okay. All right. So um, anything uh, else you want to talk about in terms of uh, sleep paralysis? You, you had some uh, statistics or data? So I would imagine... A decent amount of people have experienced sleep paralysis at least one time or something that's very similar to sleep paralysis. Current statistics show that on a regular basis, about 7-8% to 8 of the population experience sleep paralysis. 
It seems to also be associated with individuals who have other type of sleep disorders, such as narcolepsy, that feeling of constant drowsiness and falling asleep, as well as people suffering from depression, anxiety, or other types of mental disorders. So these people seem to be more at risk. Now, this is just a correlation, but more at risk of experiencing this sleep paralysis um, experience. This might make sense with... um the study you mentioned, right, that was talking about neurotransmitters and these chemicals in the brain. Exactly. That might have uh, effectively the, uh, or might be involved or are actually involved in some of these same uh, mental disorders you talked about, right? Exactly. I mean, these different mental disorders are associated with, you know, either too much or too little of a particular chemical or neurotransmitter being released in the brain. Good point. But uh, then again, almost everything is related to these molecules, right? There aren't a ton of neurotransmitters, right? And that's why it's so difficult to study this, right? Because all of these different, there might not be too many of these chemicals, but isolating them and then studying them in relation to all of the other things that can affect how you sleep, it's a very difficult type of field to study. And uh, okay, well, let's wrap up with uh, some sort of maybe uh, managing the sleep paralysis. Is there is there anything out there that Uh, people are told to uh, watch out for or well, if it's a chronic condition, the first thing you should do is to basically seek help from your healthcare provider. Your healthcare provider might be able with you to come up with a specific plan, almost like a fine-tuned sleep regimen, in order to determine how best to avoid this chronic incidence of sleep paralysis episodes. Usually, more often than not, for most people, simply adhering to good sleep hygiene, which I kind of liked reading. You hear about you know natural body hygiene, but a lot of the these different doctors uh, that center on dreams and dream states, they coined this word sleep hygiene, which simply involves reducing the occurrences of naps, also waking and going to bed, going to sleep at regular times, not really changing that up too much, as well as the avoidance of looking at a computer or cell phone for too long or before you, know, you go to bed. Or bright light screens, that thing. I think okay. it, recent data, especially with all of these different machines and tablets that we have access to now, I know I'm guilty of it for looking at my phone for about half an hour before I go to bed. I'm finding myself having a harder time falling asleep at night since doing that for over the course of the last few years. Yeah. But yeah. adhering to good sleep hygiene seems to dampen the overall incidence of sleep paralysis episodes. All right. Well, I think that wraps up uh, talking about that, unless there's anything else you want to add? I think with those two, these seem to be the more, not crazy, uh, but more um, weird science phenomena. All right. Uh, Well, that brings us to the uh, end of the first section. Uh, For those of you listening on the radio, we'll have a small uh, music break. And for those listening on the podcast, uh, we'll just keep going. All right, so we are back uh, with uh, BioBusters. So uh, good first, uh, good first section, I think, right? Yeah, I think uh, that first section was useful with simple scientific phenomena, right? Yeah. These unexplainable phenomena that only in the past few years have been recently not solved, but on the road to being solved. Yeah, particularly that sleep paralysis thing. I I didn't know that existed, even though I had experienced it uh, a couple times. It's good that people are researching it, too. It's nice that these are current data. Absolutely. All right, so the uh, uh, last uh, conspiracy theory uh, that we'll talk about 
is uh, Flat Earthers, which, uh, you know, for me is highly entertaining. This is a funny one, you know, the Flat Earther Society or the Flat Earth Society, and every now and then the different articles I see on Facebook, I don't know why they pop up for me because I definitely don't believe in it, but it's amusing to read every now and then. No, it is, it is, and there's so many great memes out there as on, on Flat Earthers and... Uh, we know that's probably why this flat earth conspiracy is gaining as much traction possibly is people see these memes, they start to investigate, <laughs> and maybe they start thinking, wow, the earth really is a flat disk. Okay. Well, you know, as we'll talk about today, it uh, turns out that uh, y more younger people believe in flat earth uh, theories than older people, uh, based on a study I looked up. but. So uh, effectively, what is Flat Earth Society? So it's a bunch of uh, people who believe that, uh, or a small portion of the population that uh, thinks or rather believes that Earth is flat. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's actually a disc rather than, <laughs> I know it's funny, it's hard not to laugh about that. There's gonna be a lot of laughing in this <laughs> section, I think. So uh, it is an incontrovertible fact that the Earth is round, right? Yes. We, we know that for a fact. We have actually known that for a fact since uh, Greek times. Yes. Uh, if, if thousands of years ago, right? But a small portion still think that the Earth is flat. And um, if you sort of dig a little bit through uh, with these flat earthers, right? And uh, their theory, you say, well, how, why does the water not fall off the planet, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, apparently this uh, disk of Earth is <laughs> is bounded on the outside by a giant wall of ice oh. that keeps everything in. I mean, that's not melting in any uh, in any way. I was right? going to say maybe Game of Thrones drew inspiration from that, you know, from the <laughs> wall of ice and wall that separates the north At from the, the south. At the end of the earth. Right? Wow. Okay. Yeah, yeah, it could be. And um, yeah, yeah, it's a giant disc uh, surrounded by a giant sheet of ice that prevents things from uh, falling off. Interesting. And you know, I was interested in knowing the exact number of people that, you know, believe in this or a percentage that believe this. And, you know, I found this uh, study uh, reported on by Forbes. Oh, and by the way, for our listeners, uh, in the show notes, you'll find uh, uh, all the links to uh, things we've dug up uh, and references effectively for our podcasts. And uh, we'll provide you also with links uh, that'll take you to PDFs of the studies that we're talking about, so you can read those studies on your own if if you so wish. Uh, sometimes we'll have links to videos or uh, links to uh, pictures if we want you to uh, look at something. So make sure to check the show notes uh, for um, uh, for these show, for these uh, links and, and show materials, and we'll make an announcement at the end of the episode where you can find those. But anyway, so uh, a recent study I found, uh, Forbes reported on it. It, it was a, uh, 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 what do you call it, a survey conducted uh, by uh, YouGov where they polled 8,215 uh, U.S. adults on their beliefs uh, in whether the earth is round or flat, right? And this is as recent as February 2018. So very, very recent. Very recent, absolutely. And... Um, here were the data. 84% responded that they have always believed the Earth is round. 
I said, you know, it should be a hundred percent, but that's a that's a good number. So it's I'll be honest, it's a little bit higher than I was imagining, but still, with the the statistics that you're going to report, there's still an alarming trend yeah. here. Yeah, five uh, percent responded that they have always thought the Earth is round, but have recently had doubts or are skeptical about that. Two percent responded that they have always thought thought the Earth is flat, but recently are skeptical about that. 2% flat out believed it, that the Earth is flat, and 7% are not sure. So kind of undecided in this arena. Which, okay. which to me is amazing. So effectively, if you, if you add up uh, all the non-believers, firm believers that it is round, you're looking at 16% who are not firmly in the Earth is round category, which is, which, which is crazy. Well, especially if you kind of extrapolate that to a larger population. Here we're only talking about 8,000 people. If this is 16% potentially of, you know, a few million, then you have quite a group of people who believe in this flat earth concept. Yeah, absolutely. So... And you know the the uh, and we'll put we'll put the link in the in the show notes, right? But the 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 study went on to look at uh, any correlations between believing the Earth is flat with uh, sort of the demographics of age, gender, uh, Republican versus Democrat, income, uh, things like that. And the ones that sort of, uh, or whether you're religious or not, the the one that jumped out at me uh, was that. A bigger number uh, of young people, in sort of in the age of eighteen to twenty-four, I see, believe it's flat. Mm. And you know they go on to talk about why they think that is right, and uh, and one of the theories that they put out there is that uh, a lot of young people get their news sort of from social media these days. Mm. Or that uh, a lot of their information sort of comes from their social media, and there's quite uh, you know what one or two popular sort of uh, figures uh, like well, what's the name of that singer? I know of a basketball player that is I can't remember the name, but he is a very strong proponent for flat Earth right. theory. And, and there's like there's either a rapper or like a, some sort of like a, maybe an R&B singer or mm-hmm. something like that that also is like adamantly the Earth is flat type thing. Well, that's exactly what we discussed a little bit earlier: is the idea that you know memes are funny and everything, and social media for the large part is a means of communication, but. This is one of the, I would say, bigger drawbacks and issues with social media and the ability to project these ideas to a wide audience. Right, and also just simply believing what you read, right? We saw that uh, as recently as a few years uh, ago with a lot of, you know, uh, stuff with the election, right? And, you know, giant amount of conspiracy theories out there. Yes. uh, About both sides, right? We're not taking sides. No, no, of course not. Yeah, but uh, it's interesting. And, you know, part part of the problem goes back to, well, uh, maybe our educational system is failing in instilling uh, in kids, uh, uh, 
not necessarily a scientific mind, but a critical mind. A I mind would say that, critical thinking yeah, is key absolutely. here. Critical yes. thinking, problem solving, analyzing, looking at things and not sort of believing it at face value, but sort of, you know, digging through uh, to find out what the truth is. And at its core, critical thinking is about having an investigative nature, right? right. Having an investigative type of mind right. in order to... Which all, all children are, right? But it's just that with time, that either gets nurtured or, or gets killed, right? Were you saying something before I interrupted you? Oh, we just had some dead air there. No, Usually on the radio show, dead air is a sign of, that's yeah, it, last we're, show. We're a podcast, so we can you know, take a second breather there. Well, what I was thinking was, so we've talked about, we've kind of been laughing it off, right, this idea of the flat earth, and people who believe in flat earth maybe need to do a little bit more digging to get the actual science and evidence. What is the science? What is the evidence that, the earth, is round? that the earth is round? Well, I mean, we, we've known it's round for thousands of years, right? The Greeks actually looked at, uh, looked at shadows. And, uh, you know, you, you could measure uh, the shadow, whether the earth is right, uh, whether the sun is right above you. Mm -hmm. And you know, as it moves over in the sky, you can measure distances of shadows, things like that. You can look at uh, simply ships going over the horizon or coming uh, from or coming back to port. Right. Uh, they disappear sort of, you know, in in um, not. You know, entirely, they don't fall yes. off, right? But hey, maybe flat maybe earthers... Maybe they do fall off. <laughs> maybe flat earthers will tell you, maybe maybe the ocean has a sort of an escalator. It's just like, go, <laughs> maybe the ocean has an escalator. Or maybe every uh, <laughs> ship that disappears on the horizon is going to the Bermuda Triangle. Could be, could be. Uh, the other thing, I mean, you, you can simply watch an eclipse, right? I mean, the, the, the shape of the earth reflected on on the moon is clearly uh, a, a sphere, right? Yes. If the Earth were to be uh, flat and a disk, then you, you you would get a strip up and down. Yes. A just straight, you know, a, a rectangle up exactly. and down on the moon, right? Well, unless the Earth and the disk is, you know, shaped in such a way. Right. Now the really odds are, yeah, 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 yeah exactly. the odds are pretty, pretty low. Right. But you know, you can look at the uh, uh, at the stars. You can gaze at the stars and see that they look different in the northern hemisphere versus the southern hemisphere, so on and so forth. Uh, you can uh, take take an airplane anywhere, right, and then look at the horizon and you know see that it curves. Uh, you can circumnavigate the planet. Uh, Boy, we're really going back in time there. Well, yeah, like Magellan, right? But, yeah. yeah, 16th century. You know, we've we've known the Earth is round for a while. So. Maybe we just need to hold a giant expedition for all of the flat earthers and people who believe in the flat earth theory, and just take them on a trip. It you know, would I, th be fun. I think, you know, I think they have their own conference. And they go to it yearly, and it just boggles my mind that they get on planes that you know that they just don't look out the window. And maybe every flight they've ever taken was just cloudy weather, and you know they could not see the horizon. You know, don't hold me to this, but maybe a year ago, there might have been some type of presentation on flat Earth theory at this conference, and they had discussed this, you know, negative to the theory. Oh, what happens when you get to the edge of this 
flat disk or flat earth. Right. And I want to say, don't hold me to this, I should look it up again. I want to say somebody actually proposed a theory of a force field that is on the edges of the flat earth. That no, like pulls you down, brings you up to the other side? Either that, some type of gravitational force field, <laughs> or you just hit the force field, you bounce back and go the opposite way. So I would love to talk to somebody who's had that happen, you know, a captain of a ship who switched over underneath to the other side or bounced back from the force field. Could be, could be. Maybe they're all, again, sinking in the Bermuda Triangle, right? That's all I Maybe think. every single person that's gone into the Bermuda Triangle has been a flat earther. I like that. <laughs> so, that, well, then that brings us sort of to the uh, thing that I was really interested in is why do people believe conspiracy theories, right? Why do people believe in this stuff, whether it's flat earth or uh, climate change or uh, what was the first one we talked about, the uh, Bermuda, Bermuda Triangle, Triangle, right? And turns out uh, one of the big answers out there uh, centers around uncertainty, fear, and feeling out of control. Mm -hmm. So humans have a need for control and security, and then where they can't have either or both, they tend to try and compensate for that with theories that are not necessarily rooted in reality, right? But that do offer some relief. Uh, I mean, it is somewhat of a defense mechanism. If oh, you is. think about, I mean, thinking about the entire biosphere, the entire round planet Earth, it's somewhat of a staggering concept, you know, something that big that holds so much inside of it. And maybe that type of idea and even the investigation of that idea, right, the science and the scientific theory behind why the Earth is round, it can get a little bit complex. And when it becomes complex, it's a little bit daunting. Right. So what will individuals do? Some people will try to find the most simple explanation for that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, so I, I found this study, a recent study in the Journal of Memory Studies, and they looked at the association between the emergence of conspiracy theories and uh, societal crises. And uh, one of the things that uh, 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 jumped out at me, and I'm quoting here, evidence suggests that the aversive feelings that people experience when in crisis, fear, uncertainty, and the feeling of being out of control stimulate a motivation to make sense of the situation, increasing the likelihood of perceiving conspiracies in social situations. Then they go on in the paper to discuss how conspiracies are then spread and then how they get enshrined in cultures, how they become part of the uh, both the oral and written history of a yes. culture and then sort of how they spread and, and things like that. I mean, this is just one of dozens of conspiracy theories that we still hear talked about, you right. know, currently. Yeah. The moon landing being a hoax. Oh, absolutely um, staged, yeah. 9-11 being a conspiracy Inside theory. Inside job by the government. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And the thing that all these conspiracy... Climate change is a hoax. Exactly. The thing that all of these conspiracy theories have in common, at least a very great deal of them, is the fact that there is no direct evidence or direct data that supports this specific, these different conspiracy theories. No, and a lot of them uh, came about uh, when, so, you know, societies, uh, well, at least in the U.S., were going through some sort of crisis, right? 9-11, that crisis of sort of, you know, uh, being attacked on our own soil sort of created the conspiracy theory of that. Uh, the undeniable fact that we are experiencing global warming, right? You know, that's a crisis. Uh, there was another one that they mentioned in the paper, uh, the conspiracy theory about how democratic bankers tanked the economy to get Obama elected or, you know, something like that. 
you know so there's there's a lot of conspiracy theories out there that have been uh, associated or came about as a result of societal crises right it's amazing and I'm not saying this to be facetious or sarcastic in any way but it is quite amazing how fear panic and feelings of anxiety can then lead to basically ill-informed decision-making, right? Yeah. And the development of these nasty theories. It really is. Well, the other the other thing that they talk about in the paper is that the irony of all of this is that uh, conspiracy theories have actually uh, been shown to not necessarily reduce any of the uncertainty or the anxiety that people feel. Turns out that, and according to this paper in the Journal of Memory Studies, conspiracy theory theories actually increase feelings of powerlessness, leading people to a slew of maladaptive uh, behavioral intentions, right? And It's kind of like a vicious cycle there. Yeah, I yeah, mean, if yeah. it's still perpetuating feelings of fear, restlessness, and anxiety, then that could then lead to a stronger belief and increased generation of these conspiracy theories. And then it just goes on and on. So it's no wonder why this widespread notion of flat earth and other conspiracy yeah. theories is taking hold. Yeah, and uh, really it's a result of, uh, you know, just a not so great uh, educational system, right? I, it, for me, it, it tells me that we need to do better as educators to uh, uh, really teach strong analytical and scientific reasoning skills. Teaching critical thinking and analytical skills is a sure way of preventing belief in conspiracy theories. So it's exactly what you say. Uh, prevention is yeah. the best and most efficient answer to this dilemma. Absolutely. Because trying to treat this cause, I mean, we both know that somebody who believes full-fledged in this conspiracy theory, they are much more unlikely to change their mind. Right. They've and devoted too much time to it. Right, and studies have shown this. It, it turns out that uh, those that do believe in conspiracy theories, even when faced with the evidence, even when told otherwise, even when shown otherwise, right, uh, mounting evidence of it, uh, they, they, they dig in, right? They are uh, enshrined in that belief. They're less likely to change. So uh, the solution here is not treatment, right? It's prevention. It's to yes. teach younger people, uh, not necessarily certain theories, but just to teach them uh, the uh, ability to uh, distinguish fact from fiction and to learn how to go and uh, look up information and not believe just the first thing they read. Don't take this at face value. Right. Look it up. Do some investigation. Do some of your own research and come to your own conclusion rather than falling prey to, like you said, a uh, flat earth meme or yeah. a flat earth post on Facebook. Right. And you know what? <laughs> everything, uh, not everything you see on the internet is truth, right? And Okay. Uh, anything you want to add to that? I think we've, uh, uh, we don't want to go over time. Anything you want to? I think we covered say? it pretty well. I think these are some of the more prominent, either scientific phenomena, weird ones, or this is just one of the conspiracy theories that we've tackled here today um, in future episodes, a few weeks, months down the line. Maybe depending on audience input, we'll tackle sure. a few other conspiracy theories. Absolutely. And speaking of audience input, I think uh, uh, we should uh, read uh, listener emails, right? So um, if you take the time to email us, and uh, we'd love to hear from you. 
we're so, always looking for constructive criticism, things that we're not only doing well, but things that you would like us to fix because absolutely. part of this is not only promoting, you know, outreach and you know, science, cool science concepts and facts to a larger audience. But we want to make this the most entertaining, best show it can be. And we can't do that without your help. Absolutely. So you want to read that uh, email again? Sure. Um, Nancy wrote in and said, I just wanted to let you know how much I enjoyed the podcast on the plague. That's uh, episode two. Episode two, cheap plug. But episode two, cheap plug on the plague. My daughter is working on a paper for her history class on the Black Death. I helped her with much of the research, so I'm familiar with many of the facts you presented. I also learned a few new things. I enjoyed the banter between Dr. Fawner and Dr. Abby Abdallah the most. It was well done and well worth the listen. Thanks. That's always a nice pat on the back, the fact yeah, absolutely. that no, I yeah, can't yeah. shut my mouth up. It's actually a good thing. <laughs> it's nice. Well, thank you, Nancy, for writing in. And, uh, well, that's our show for today. Uh, you can email us at thebiobusters at gmail.com. Again, that's thebiobusters at gmail.com. You can also find us on iTunes. Just search for The Biobusters. You can use any podcast uh, catcher, download our episodes. You can also listen to our episodes on thebiobusters.podbean.com. So Podbean, literally P-O-D-B-E-A-N. Com. Absolutely. And the Biobusters is T H E B I O B U S T E R S. Uh, we'd love from, to hear from you, so please email us. I'm Delbert Abbey Abdallah, and you can find me on Twitter at Dr. Delbert, and you can find Christopher Fawner at Fawner, F O N N E R 916. Thank you all for listening, and thanks to Baha Namani for the music. Thank you.